This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. We've all heard the term emotional intelligence, also referred to as EQ, so much now that it's a buzzword. We know it's listed on job descriptions and cited as an alternative to cultivating young people. Emotional intelligence has become a crucial part of what we look for in coworkers, bosses, employees, children, and even ourselves. But when we really break it down, how many of us can identify the elements that make up this term? Most of the ink that's been spilled on emotional intelligence leans towards a version of EQ that focuses on the individual. It goes like this. Be nicer to coworkers and family members, and you build empathy. More empathy means people like you more, which leads you to being a more successful person. Now, don't get me wrong. Empathy is important, of course. But if you focus only on empathy, you're missing crucial ways to be emotionally intelligent. What we need to be focusing on in the conversation is not just about me. It's about we and why. In this part of today's show, we're going to be taking a much broader look at emotional intelligence than you've probably heard before. We're going to be getting into the we and why. We're also going to talk about how highly intelligent families not only survive, but thrive. And what can the newest brain science teach us about emotionally intelligent decision making? Today's show is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union, which is proud to serve the Armed Forces veterans and their families. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or Department of Defense, they would be proud to serve you, too. Federally insured by NCUA. It all starts right after this. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Carrie Goyette, who's the author of Emotional Intelligence You Can Actually Use, The Non-Obvious Guide. Carrie, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. So emotional intelligence has been around for a while, and has it changed since Daniel Goleman, I think, was one of the first people who talked about it? Has it changed in the mm -hmm. 20 or 30 years since he came out? Or are there new things that we know that we wish we would have before? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've been studying it for over two decades. And, and yeah, Daniel Goleman was kind of the original kind of grandfather, if you will, of emotional intelligence. And I would say it, it's not that it's changed so much as as the, um, as the fact that we now have a lot more neuroscience um, knowledge behind us. And so it's more about putting, into, putting it into context and understanding, um, understanding at a little bit more uh, deeper level um, why kind of the brain um, operates like it does and how to more effectively 
um, manage and increase our emotional intelligence. So I'm excited because I think the latest in neuroscience just really helps us understand it more effectively and then also give us um, more practical applications on how we can how we can apply it and increase our, our emotional intelligence. Yeah, I think that's what I really want to hear about most from you is because I think since, I don't know, it's been forever almost, it seems like it's at least 20 mm-hmm. or 30 years that people have been talking about EQ and how important mm-hmm. it is. And nobody really explains mm-hmm. what it is and how you get more of it and how you actually use it. So why, mm-hmm. don't, we, why don't we start with there? What, what is EQ? Mm-hmm. And, and we'll, we'll yeah, go from there. EQ is really, emotional intelligence is really about um, the ability to manage kind of the emotional side of your brain, the emotions in your brain, so that you can create space for higher level thinking and, and to be able to make more effective decisions and, and to effectively problem solve. And so it's, it's gotten a lot of attention as of late. Just, um, you know, again, it's always been important, but I would say over the past couple of decades, it, you know, when working with leaders, um, you know, I think they thought it's a good thing and I need more of it if I have time. It was always one of those, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the cherry on top, if I have time. Um, and now I would say what we've learned in, in neuroscience is that, you know, 95% of our decision making happens in the emotional centers of our brain. So it's much more critical. It's not just about going into a meeting and managing my emotions or, you know, not letting my kids kind of trigger some of my emotions so that I can come off as a very cool, calm and collected parent, it's, it's really about the sum total of the decisions that I'm making as a human being and how is that impacting my ability to problem solve and navigate life. And so that's why the World Economic Forum report recently uh, repeat, uh, released their report that said emotional intelligence will be a top 10 skill in 2020. Hmm. Um, and, 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 and partly because um, we're seeing a demand for it, but also because there's this dangerous paradox going on of, you know, we're raising children that are becoming smarter and smarter, which is great. Our IQ has gone up about 24 points in the past three, uh, three decades. But unfortunately, the, our emotional intelligence has dropped um, at that same rate. So while we may be becoming smarter, we're becoming less wise. Um, and it's impacting our ability to make decisions and solve solve problems. Well, when you talk about the emotions, though, what kinds of emotions mm-hmm. are you talking about? And man- you're talking about managing emotions and not getting triggered by your kids or something. I mean, mm-hmm. there it, it's it's so broad. It's difficult. I mean, do you, are you only managing anger, or you're managing mm-hmm. other kinds of things? And how does that look? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And yeah, it is more than just, you know, kind of anger, sadness. Um, Those are certainly um, emotions that we experience, but you also have to look at the emotional need of the brain. So what is the brain's number one role in that survival? And the way that the brain survives, what we found in neuroscience is that it's really the brain is consistently asking, unconsciously, um, asking two questions all day long, and that's what's next and how am I doing? So What's next is all about our brain is trying to predict the future so that we can survive. So what's coming next, you know, um, what's going to happen at school next so I can kind of survive my friends and survive, you know, hopefully getting a good grade in school. And then how am I doing is around our, our hardwired need to socially connect with other human beings. So we have this deep um, need, not, not even just a desire, but a need to connect with others. And, and how effectively we're able to socially connect and develop deep relationships 
is directly correlated with how effective we will be as adults in, in being able to, to make decisions, navigate life. And so, our, you know, and, and that's something that is really, we knew that we were social beings. We had no idea that um, our brains will never fully thrive unless, unless we're part of a group. So our brain is seeking those connections all day long unconsciously. And so all of that is, is deeply rooted into that limbic brain or the emotional centers of our brain. So it's more than just managing emotions. It's, it's understanding that I've got to figure out how to manage relationships, resolve conflicts, so that I can have deep relationships with people because that's what my brain is driven to do unconsciously every day. And how effective I am at that will be directly related to how satisfied, successful, happy, you know, whatever, you know, all those great things that we're shooting for. Um, that's, that's what will um, impact that the most. Okay. Can you define empathy? Mm-hmm. I, know that that's, so I think empathy it's an easy is, question, but I think yeah. it's at the same time, it's almost an impossible one. So I'll just <laughs> <laughs> take as much time as you need. But I'm just, I think that that's one of the things that comes up with emotional intelligence is empathy and how mm-hmm. important it is to have empathy and to be empathetic mm-hmm. and but mm-hmm. I think it's it's yeah. sounds like something we ought to understand, but I, I'm not sure that everybody does. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, empathy is really about understanding how another person can feel. So being able to to really see it from their perspective and 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 have good insights about how it may be impacting them, um, how they may be feeling, and so it's it's taking the the focus off of ourselves and really putting it on. Um, onto that other other person, stepping into their shoes. What are they feeling and why? Um, what we have to understand about the human brain is it does nothing randomly. Um, the brain is a, a incredibly efficient, and so it doesn't do anything randomly. And so even when we look at somebody else's behavior and we're scratching our head going, why in the world are they behaving that way? We have to understand that there's a reason, there's a context for that. We may not understand it. And so the more that we lean in, ask questions, and begin to understand it, uh, the more effective we will be as a leader, whether it's a leader at work or whether it's a leader in the home, um, we've got to we've got to lean in and have additional empathy. And so that's why you know one of the key components of emotional intelligence is something called perspective taking. Um, some of us aren't good about being able to feel what other people feel, but if you can just um, start to take the perspective of somebody else, it actually broadens your it broadens your own perspective, and then you also are able to manage your own emotions because something you may take personally, once you understand the perspective and where it's coming from, uh, you may be able to manage that emotion just simply by seeing it from another perspective. I've got to say, that is incredibly difficult to do. I, I've been having a series of, of discussions with my 16-year-old about this, about how mm-hmm. we both, we, we'll sit down and we'll have nice conversations, and, and we'll get to mm-hmm. a point where we, we both are saying to each other, you know, why don't you give me the benefit of the doubt and not assume mm-hmm. that what I'm saying is mm-hmm. meant to hurt you? And we, mm-hmm. we both are saying the same thing, and we're both right. Mm-hmm. And but we're right. you know it's it's so hard. I think that in in some ways, you said that the the brain doesn't fully function or doesn't doesn't fully thrive without being part of a group. But I think at the same time, we're we must be wired to constantly be defending ourselves from real or perceived mm-hmm. threats, and there's a lot of perceived threats that aren't really there. And that, 
Yeah, you're exactly right about the perceived threat, and that's where we often go wrong. We we perceive a threat that's actually not there, and that causes us to, to lose perspective. So it's usually based out of fear. So we have a fear of, um, I've got to see my position, and I have to be right at all costs because someone looks stupid that looks like an idiot if I'm wrong, or, you know, I just to be vulnerable. Um, and so those perceived threats actually lead us down the, the wrong path. And that's, you know, exercising emotional intelligence and, and also why it's so incredibly hard. Those fears um, that often drive us um, and keep us from being vulnerable and truly connecting at a deep level um, and understanding somebody else's perspective, um, it, they're, they're unconscious, they're, they're deeply rooted, and they're very hard to overcome. So, again, it's much more than just managing my anger or anything like that. It's, it's, it's managing those fears that are underlying a lot of those emotions. I'm talking with Kerry Goyette, who's the author of Emotional Intelligence You Can Actually Use, and it's part of the Non-Obvious Guide series. And we're going to take a quick break right now. As soon as we come back, we're going to keep talking to Kerry. We'll get into some other aspects of emotional intelligence and try to bring some parenting messages on how you can use the emotional intelligence yourself when managing your kids and how they can use it if they happen to be listening to manage you. I'm Armin Brott. You're, li- you're listening to Positive Parenting. Did you know one in three adults is at risk for kidney disease? If you have high blood pressure or diabetes, you could be the one. I was looking in the newspaper and saw an article that said if you have symptoms for kidney disease, you should see your doctor. And I really didn't expect anything because I felt healthy. I didn't worry about my borderline high blood pressure. Turns out it was silently inflicting kidney disease. When you know, it's almost too late. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Kerry Goyette, who's the author of the Non-Obvious Guide to Emotional Intelligence You Can Actually Use. Uh, Kerry, we're just talking about perceived threats and managing fear and emotions. And besides that kind of thing, let's talk a little bit about using emotional intelligence in relationships with, with your kids that I think that the, the point that you made about perspective and looking at things from different people's perspective is going to be really important to try to figure out the question that most of us are constantly asking ourselves about our kids, which I suppose is the same question we ask ourselves about our cats and dogs. Why are they doing that? It's, <laughs> That's why, right. why would anybody in their what right mind... What is going mind, on that would make them choose that behavior? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And so, uh, yeah, I'm the mother of three, so I've got two uh, two kids that are in college and one in high school. So um, it's been fun to see them grow up, and, and I've really made it a focus. You know, I kind of thought about my legacy as a, as a mom. What do I want that to be? And, and I really kind of thought about emotional intelligence, and I thought, you know, I don't really care what they decide to go into, what their vocation is. But what I want to teach them is that um, I want them to be able to navigate all the hardships, um, the pain, the challenges, bad teachers, bad professors, bad bosses, um, tough friendships. Um, I want to teach them how to navigate and problem solve um, like nobody's business. That, and it doesn't really matter what they do. I know that they will be able to be successful. And so um, I think that's the key with emotional intelligence, you know, especially when we're thinking about um, kids, is it's really about teaching them how to be incredible problem solvers. And I 
could have gone into this. Um, it, it was for all the right reasons. The parenting model shifted, and we were so worried about the team. And I, because uh, that is something we should be worried about. But we went a little too far on the other end of the spectrum, and we started solving problems for our kids, and we started protecting them from problems. And the very thing we were trying to protect, which was their self-esteem, we've seen it go down significantly. And if you think about it, it makes sense. While our intentions as parents were good, um, we wanted to protect them, the, the reality is we build confidence and we build self-esteem when we're able to solve problems, and those are problems and challenges in life. And so I, as a parent, the last thing I want to do is take those away from them, or nor do I want to solve it for them. But I do want to help them navigate and coach them through that process. So I think that we need to listen and validate their feelings, you know, let them, you know, hear them out and validate that, um, but not ruminate in it. We don't want them to stay in, a, in an emotional state. We want to start getting them to action. Okay, so now what are we going to do about it? What do you feel like is the next step? What would be the consequences of that? And again, not solving it for them, but walking them through and mentoring them through the problem-solving process. Well, how much do you think is also involved in having to cope with failure, the, the, the resilience aspect of it? That, that, that mm-hmm. seems to be so important because you can, you can talk somebody through all the steps about what do you do if that mm-hmm. happens, what do you do if this happens, mm-hmm. but actually right. doing it when something happens, and especially one of the things that, you know, the 385 things that could happen that you haven't talked about, uh, that's where the the real confidence comes from, self-confidence and self-esteem comes from, right? Right, right. And resilience is something that has to be learned and and learned and built up over time. And the reality is you can't build it up if you don't face some some failures. Um, If my kids failed, I would be upset really things. Okay, but what do we learn from it? What are you going to do differently next time? So I always tried to immediately kind of turn it around to what are we going to learn from it? What can we take away? And and not making you know it's not a hit. It doesn't mean failure. It means they failed in this one particular instance. Um, and so you know, especially in college, my my son was pre med, and I mean you know, <laughs> um, it's hard. And we had when he had organic chemistry. I mean that that really threw him. And I was like, great, okay. So what are you going to do differently on the next test when you bombed that one? Um, you know, it's not a big deal, but what are you going to do? And so immediately getting into that problem-solving mode and realizing I'm not a failure. I just failed in that particular instance. And anybody who's been a real, you know, a leader, um, we all know, you know, we're just a compilation of all of our failures over time, and we've learned from them. Um, and so, and that's what I've, I've really tried to um, instill in my kids is if you're not failing, then you're not pushing yourself. Um, we've got to fail a little bit because that's just how we learn. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with a kid who is afraid to fail? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's usually because of we've, we've some perfectionistic tendencies in there. And so um, I, I usually um, work with um, parents and leaders on how you can encourage your kids to stay, fail in safe areas. So start them out small, push them over a big cliff you know, a big um, issue that they don't want to fail on, but let them have small failures where the stakes are not that high. Um, and so if it's, um, you know, let's let's try a different activity that, you know, you, maybe you're not the best in. And, you know, something little to where it's not a, not a big deal if they fail. Start small and then just gradually see how they do, see how they fail. See, um, watch as they're building some of that confidence around failure and then really be their champion. When they fail and they learn something, and they get right back up, um, you know, cheer for them and be like, gosh, I love it that you're willing to get right back up and, and go after it. 
Um, I think in this society, we're so... Can you hear me better now? Yeah. Okay. Just let me know when you're ready for me. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, we're so big on uh, praising and wanting um, that we, we often forget to, to praise and apply uh, being out of your comfort zone and fail a little bit. And I think as a society, just in general, we're that. So that's where I think as parents, we can step in and, and encourage our kids to get outside of their comfort zone and, and applaud them when they fail and they, you know, they pick themselves back up. Um, and I think that's something that we can do to kind of counteract some of the cultural, um, some of the cultural impact. What do you think is the hardest thing for kids to understand about emotional intelligence and something that they might not have heard the phrase or they might not be familiar with the concepts. But if you're introducing this for the first time as a parent, what do, what can we expect them to have the most difficulty with? Um, Often it depends on their developmental age. Um, Teenagers, um, you know, sounds like you have teenagers. I, um, I do as well. So I will say teenagers often have the hardest time with, well, you don't understand me. Um, and so they don't understand that maybe, well, we didn't go through exactly what they went through. We can't understand that developmental phase. And, and I will say they, they really struggle with that aspect. Um, and so I think just, you know, that's fine. We, we don't have to argue with it. And you're right. I don't understand. I'm not in your exact context, but, but help me understand. Um, I think the younger children um, struggle seeing other people's perspective. When my when my oldest son was um, was in fourth grade, he was bullied, um, and so one of the things you know I really wanted to help bulletproof proof him against get, getting bullied. And so part of it it sounds really challenging, and and my initial reaction as a parent was I was mad. I wanted to go in and mama bear and protect him. Um, and I said, well, let's understand it from the perspective of the bully. Let's understand it from his perspective. What do you think is going on there? And the reason I wanted to do that was I wanted him to understand this wasn't personal to him. This wasn't about him. This was somebody that was making a bad choice, and they had, you know, this particular boy, you know, had a lot of really um, tough issues he had to deal with in his home life. And so when I got his perspective, um, all of a sudden it took kind of the punch out of it. It took it took the personal aspect, like what's wrong with me that he would do this. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was hard. I mean, it's hard for kids to kind of get, they think the world revolves around them. And so it's hard to get outside of their own perspective. But I think as a parent, we can, we can work with that. We can, we can say, huh, I wonder how this other child feels, or I wonder how they're looking at it. And so I think that's an opportunity for us to be able to coach and help them see other perspectives. That seems like a really challenging one to try to take a look at things from the bully's perspective. I mean, you, you want to make sure that we all understand that the bully is wrong and shouldn't be right. doing that. And that, that, that I, I guess, taking something, mm-hmm. l- looking at something from somebody's perspective does not mean that it, it, it gives them a pass on the behavior. It doesn't. But what it can do is help take some of the personal um, hit out of it. And, you know, this really isn't about you. This child has other issues and what he's doing is wrong. He's not coping very well. Um, but that's how he's coping. So it's really not about you, but we have to kind of manage that. So, um, and so it, it gets them into a little bit better place to be able to see, Oh, okay, this isn't me. So then how do I want to manage it? Okay. Well, if he comes after me, then I can go tell the teacher, you know, I think it would just became so, you know, without thinking that way, it became more about them and, Oh my gosh, it must be something about me and something that's wrong with me. And it, it wasn't, I wanted him to see that it's really not about you. So don't make it about you if it's not about you. 
Carrie, you said that you work with leaders and other people. I know you've done some TED Talks and uh, written for magazines. Mm -hmm. Where can people find out more about your work? Yeah. Um, if they go to my website at thinkaperio.com, we keep a ton of resources on our website. Uh, we've got all the articles. I've written several articles. My most recent article was published in Harvard Business Review. Uh, so we have all of our art articles on there, podcasts um, that I've been been on, and then also um, resources from the book. So if you buy the book, um, we have a ton of resources that are on the website free. Um, that help you um, increase your emotional intelligence. Okay, and the site again? Thinkaperio.com. How do you spell the last part of that? So it's think, T-H-I-N-K, right. A-P-E-R-I-O.com. Okay, all right. Not, not a word I'm familiar with. Okay, thank you very much. Great to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on your show. McGruff the Crime Dog here. Let's hear from an identity thief. Identities are easy to catch online. I send people an official-looking email pretending to be their bank or credit card company and ask them to confirm their personal information. Looks them every time. Safeguard your personal information on the phone, online, and especially at home because half of identity theft occurs by someone you think you know. Keep your identity to yourself and take a bite out of crime. Learn more from the National Crime Prevention Council at ncpc.org. A message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brat, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my 14-year-old daughter seems to believe that she needs to start dating. She says all of her friends are doing it and feels left out. 14 just seems too young. I don't think anyone, boy or girl, should start until at least 16. I want to tell her over my dead body, but I also don't want to be that dad. What can I do? As the father of three daughters, two of whom made it through their teen years without getting pregnant, the third is 16, and I'm quite confident she'll do the same, I definitely feel your pain. The very idea of your little girl alone with a boy can bring up all sorts of emotions, headlined by anger. Boys that age have only one thing on their mind, and worry. How can I possibly protect her? Let's start with the only one thing on their mind idea. Do you really believe that? TV, movies, and the Internet put a lot of pressure on teens to have as much sex as they can, as often as they can, with as many different people as possible. But the reality is that the majority of boys your daughter's age are petrified of girls, and what's most likely on their mind is, I'm hungry. As far as the how-can-I-protect-her idea, you have two things going for you. First, your daughter herself doesn't sound like she's all that into it and just wants to date because everyone else is. By telling you that, she's almost begging you to say no. Second, even if dates were her idea, you're right. 14 is too young for serious one-on-one -on -one dating. That said, you can't just play the tough guy and expect her to be happy about it. In fact, the more forcefully you forbid dating, the more you'll push her towards it. Here's what to do instead. Really talk to her. You have a wonderful opportunity here. Your daughter actually came to you with a problem. That says a huge amount, in a good way, about your relationship. Ask her to tell you more about the dating her friends are doing, the pressure she feels, and what she actually means by dating. 
you might be thinking dinner, movie, make out in the backseat of the car, or maybe skip the first two and just get right down to number three. But she might be thinking, hold hands and share an ice cream cone. Listen carefully and don't be judgmental. When you sense an opportunity, talk to her about the dangers of dating, including violence, which, by the way, is just as likely to be initiated by girls as boys. Talk about relationships, sex, and the finances involved. You're not going to wrap this up in one conversation, so take it a step at a time. Establish some dating rules. Number one is that group dates are okay, one-on-one dates are not. End of story. Group dates let her be with the boy who makes her blush, but in a setting where inappropriate behavior is a lot less likely. Tag along. In my view, groups of young teens shouldn't be out and about without an adult nearby. There's too much opportunity for things to go sideways. And if you want your daughter to see how serious you are, be the chaperone. Don't be right in the middle of the group or try to be everyone's buddy. That would only embarrass your daughter. Instead, walk half a block behind and sit a few rows away in the movie. But be there. Watch carefully and let her enjoy herself. If you've got a question or a comment on anything you've heard on Positive Parenting or something you'd like to hear, please do let us know. You can drop us a line through our website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you, but don't go just yet because, as you know, there's a lot more of this one coming right at you. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this from the MrDad.com radio network. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Noted non-recycler Tommy Crenshaw talks about the future. Oh, I can totally see finding another planet that can support life when ours fills up with trash. Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle, unless you're into lame excuses like Tommy's. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Starting over on a new planet? Now that's exciting. Don't be that guy, unless you want people looking at you funny. Log on to yougottobekidding.org. Ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat, founder of MrDad.com, and so happy that you stayed with us because we've got a great show coming up for you. When Columbia University Dr. Kelly Harding began her clinical practice, she never intended to explore the invisible factors behind our health. But then there were the rabbits. In 1978, a seemingly straightforward experiment designed to establish the relationship between high blood cholesterol and heart health in rabbits discovered that kindness, in the form of a particularly nurturing postdoc who petted and spoke to the lab rabbits as she fed them, made the difference between a heart attack and a healthy heart. Dr. Kelly Harding discovered the rabbits were just the beginning of a much larger story. Groundbreaking research illustrates that love, friendship, community, life's purpose, and our environment can have a far greater impact on our health than anything that happens in the doctor's office. For instance, hugs have the power to fight off colds. Learning something new or volunteering can add years to your life. Napping regularly can decrease one's risk of heart disease, and people living with purpose are much more likely to stay healthy. 
In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Kelly Harding about our health and new ways to look at it and the latest discoveries in the science of compassion, kindness, and human connection. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about how kindness affects the way that we live, work, and play when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Dear Mom and Dad, Well, the Army has finally seen fit to give me some time off, so I'm writing to tell you that I'm doing fine over here. And Mom, since you asked, if anyone wants to help, just tell them to contact the USO. You can't believe how much they do for us. With love, your son Michael. The USO depends on the generosity of the American people. To find out how you can help, visit us at USO.org. The USO, until everyone comes home. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Dr. Kelly Harding, who's the author of The Rabbit Effect, Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. Kelly, thanks for joining us. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. So tell us about the rabbits. Why don't we start off with that? <laughs> You're like, what is the deal with these rabbits? Absolutely. So... So my book is called The Rabbit Effect, and it's based on this study that I heard about when I was in training that sort of changed my trajectory of my career and how I thought about health. So so The Rabbits refers to this study that was done in the late 1970s when there was still this question about, you know, heart health and diet. And so this really lovely researcher named Dr. Robert Neerum was looking at, you know, virtually genetically identical rabbits getting high-fat diets. And what he found in his study is that one of the groups of his rabbits had way better health outcomes than the others. And so he was trying to figure out what was going on. He thought there was something wrong with the protocol, but everything checked out. It turned out that all those rabbits were under the care of one particularly caring, loving postdoc. Um, So they, they thought, could it be that you know, love and kindness were somehow changing, you know, the biology of the rabbits because it turned out this researcher wasn't just, you know, feeding the rabbits. She was also, you know, petting them, talking to them, giving them love and affection. And so um, they repeated the study this time with really tightly controlled conditions and, in fact, found out that, indeed, it did seem as though, you know, the social connection was changing this rabbit or changing these rabbits biology. So, you know, that's sort of like the beginning of a much bigger story about health. And that's, you know, how our social world impacts our health far more than, you know, as a doctor, I had previously realized. You know, I'm just puzzled by that in a way, because I I was thinking that it, it also, in addition to what you said about, it opens up our eyes to certain things. It also speaks to the idea that there might be some kind of profoundly universal love that I, w- I would have thought that, I mean, there, there's a lot of research now about the importance of, of social relationships between people and that, that people who yeah. have more friends, particularly older people, do better. So I would have thought, okay, rabbits who have more rabbit friends would do better, <laughs> but having a, a person friend would seem, it seems unusual that, that there would be that kind of connection. Does that make any sense? Well, I think what you're getting at is, so, and a couple things to keep in mind. So 
yes, you know, fast forward to 2019, and we now know that loneliness as, is as significant a risk factor for poor health outcomes as things like smoking 15 cigarettes a day or, yeah. you know, high blood pressure, heavy alcohol use, or even obesity. It's a, it's a, you know, loneliness it's is a, a bigger big risk deal. factor to health yeah. than being severely overweight, which is pretty incredible because that's, you know, most people think about health and think about sort of like, you know, diet, exercise sleep and maybe the occasional trip to the doctor, but not necessarily like, you know, having a good friend to call and, um, or somebody that they're close and connected to. So, um, you know, so I think looking through our eyes now, that seems like, you know, sort of thinking about that makes more sense. At the time, um, it was a pretty radical idea. And, you know, much to Dr. Neerum's credit, he didn't dismiss the finding and just continue on with a different researcher to get the results he wanted. Like, he really right. stopped and said, you know, there's something pretty profound going on here. No, I think that that's, that's just amazing. I just would have thought that the, the social connection would have been with another animal of the same Rabbit. species. Right. Yeah, but I guess it, I, I wonder if maybe they'll somebody will do an experiment that way and see whether they because if they keep all these rabbits in separate cages if they don't have a chance to play but anyway, as far as it goes it, it, we we know that there's some connection and it's been it's been extended to experiments with people as well is is the bottom line of it, right? Is that thanks to that particular research other people have have taken it and run with it and that's what you're doing. Right. So there is ample evidence that our connections to other people are the major determinant of our health. And I think, you know, we tend to think of health as pretty narrowly defined in this country as health care oftentimes. But, you know, probably while well, access to quality medical care is absolutely critical for every person and every human being, at the same time, it probably only accounts for about 10 to 20 percent of our overall health status which is, you know, pretty mind-boggling, especially as somebody who's dedicated her career to that. So, yeah. you know, like what is this other 80 to 90 percent? We know genes play some role in that, but here's where it also gets interesting. It turns out that our genes are far more malleable than we had appreciated originally, and it turns out that, you know, our social environment is actually also changing how our genes are expressed, and that's mm -hmm. now known through this process of epigenetics or sort of on top of the genes, um, how proteins get expressed. And it's really fascinating research, and it's where sort of there's this, like, exciting, you know, tidal wave of both the public health research along with this sort of, you know, much more microscopic, what's happening with like the neuroimmune system, what's happening in epigenetics, and also what's happening in a field of um, genetics also known as telomere research, which you may have heard about. Yep. Yep. The, the length of them correlating to length of life generally. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I think Actually, back to your question about like if rabbit rabbit pairs, you know, we we know that for humans, our relationships with our pets are also quite beneficial. There's lots of studies showing, you know, our it's basically we are social creatures as human beings, and I imagine it's the same for animals too. But you know, we really thrive when we're connected and caring for other people, and um, and you know, it's interesting because there's studies that you know, people live longer when they have a sense of purpose, and that sense of purpose is often tied to caring for someone, but it can also be something. Like, there have even been mm -hmm. studies showing that, you know, caring for, like, a house plant for people who are in a nursing home is actually seemingly beneficial for people doing better. It's like it's just somehow part of who we are. Yeah. You know, and the whole epigenetic thing, I think, is, is fascinating. I, I think of it sometimes as the the connection between nature and nurture in a way that, that there's 
certain <gasps> things that are there. But because uh, I remember the first time I ever heard about that had to do with the, I think it was studies of people in the uh, Irish potato famine or something like that when the it was the children of people who had had it had to endure starvation for a long period of time were more likely to become obese. And it had to do with, with something being turned on in one of the genes where the genes were basically saying, well, we never know where we're going to eat again, so we better stock up right now. And uh, so, it's, so it just seems like that's, I don't know, a w- just a way of looking at it. So, Armin, you're totally right. And so in the book, I talk about a lot of these studies from public health that are these large population studies that show, in fact, I mean, first of all, isn't it amazing how adaptive our bodies and our genetics are? I mean, that's absolutely incredible just right there and sort of like the magic of, you know, life and the human body. And then I think the other piece of that is also, you know, generally what's happening is, you know, for the survival of the organism in the short term isn't always the best for the long term. So, you know, sort of it makes sense if you're in starvation conditions that, you know, calories you get would be, you know, better utilized. Um, But the downside is, you know, it's like then suddenly you're in line at McDonald's and the dollar or some fast food place with like the dollar menu. And, you know, suddenly that gene is not as adaptive anymore. So, um, you know, so there were probably the study you might be thinking about is also with the Dutch famine studies, which are some famous public health studies that I talk about in the book. And sort of, you know, what's also cool about this and what I love is sort of like the science of how people figured this out, because, you know, for so long, we thought our genes were fixed and people kind of operated under that assumption that, you know, you are who you are. But in fact, there's this like huge range of malleability and talking to the researchers who figured this out as, as part of writing the rabbit effect was so much fun because it's like, wow, isn't that incredible that actually, you know, the things that we do to take care of ourselves and others are actually, you know, changing our genetic destiny to some extent and potentially even having, you know, this trickle down effect for generations to come. No, I, and I, I got to say, as I don't usually comment on people's writing style, but I, I one of the things that, that as a reader, I appreciate in reading the book is that you do have a, I mean this in the most positive way, kind of a, a childlike, uh, gosh, that's incredible kind of feel about it, <laughs> that, which, is, which is nice. I mean, it's really nice to say, well, here's somebody who really is marveling at this. Anyway, so that's just a comment, but I, I, it's something that comes out in the book, and I think it makes it easier to read. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, actually, it's probably contagious to some extent because, you know, talking to people who've, like, won Nobel Prizes and other things, like, it's really striking this, like, sense of childlike awe just about, isn't this science, like, awesome? (laughs) It's really really contagious. So that probably some of that carries over. But, you know, as a doctor, I think that's that's the other thing is the human body and the human brain just continually surprise you in these like amazing ways. So, you know, hopefully I've conveyed that in the rabbit effect. Talking to Kelly Harding, who is the author, as she said, of the rabbit effect, live longer, happier and healthier with the groundbreaking science of kindness. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Kelly. Check it out. It's the Terminator. Hey, when'd you get back, huh? Did you have to shoot anyone? Why are you so distant? Are you not happy to see me? So what's the deal? You gonna get a job now or what? Why are you being so jumpy? Put all that stuff behind you, okay? 
No one knows what it's like to come back from Iraq or Afghanistan unless they were there. Join other veterans at communityofveterans.org because we know where you're coming from. Brought to you by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and the Ad Council. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Kelly Harding, who's the author of Live Long, I'm sorry, The Rabbit Effect. The subtitle is Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. And I want to get into some of the the different kinds of aspects of the science. There's a a bunch of different chapters about the factors, and you talk about one-on-one relationships and ties to the community. Let's talk about the, the different types of social interactions and and the effects that they have on us. Are, is there one particular kind of social interaction that's better than any others? Well, so, you know, the gist of the book is to think about, you know, how to boost positive connections in your life and for the people around you. And so that can materialize in so many different ways, but just sort of like each human being exists in what I call these, you know, areas of hidden factors around our life. And that's, you know, really our one-on-one relationships, our friendships that extend beyond that, you know, thinking about also our workplaces, which are not typically something we think about with health, but have a big impact. Also, our education systems, our neighborhoods, and then how we treat each other on the bigger society level. So what's really cool is, you know, for every person listening, you actually have a fairly sizable impact on the world around you, whether you're aware of it or not, and the health of the people around you, which is also exciting. Can you explain how that works? Sure. So, you know, I think most people, like just to give an example, so, you know, most people would say having a good doctor is important to your health, but it turns out you know, for in your workplaces, it turns out having a good manager is also critical for avoiding disease. You know, we've there are tons of studies now showing that people who work in supportive work environments take less sick leave, that they have lower company health care expenses, and they're actually more productive. Um, so it's interesting if you're somebody who's a manager listening, you know, you can rethink some of the things that you're doing in terms of the health of your employees. And one of those big lessons is just to be kind and think about how you can support people better as people. Well, how does that work? I mean, if you're if you're thinking about should you go home and just catch up on whatever sort of cleaning you have to do or go out and have a beer with your friends from work who've invited you, you know, where do you where do you draw the line on that? Should you should you do generally more socializing or is it I mean is there I mean cuz this is maybe getting it too far into the weeds, but I look at a lot of studies on nutrition, for example, and, you know, and they say, well, you should have, people should have more vitamin D, but nobody says exactly how much vitamin D you should have, or you should drink less coffee, but nobody says you should have, you know, how much you should have, what, what's it, what's the appropriate amount. So uh, I guess I'm kind of wondering how, you know, like how do you titrate relationships? <laughs> well, I mean, is, is there a, a, a certain amount of time that is optimal or a certain number of friends that's optimal or a certain amount of time to spend socializing? Because I, I would imagine that it, it might be like other aspects of our health where 
too much of a good thing starts to have detrimental effect. Well, Armin, as far as I know, nobody's ever overdosed <laughs> on like sort of like kindness and friendship. So that's a good okay. thing because, well, you know, good. I think the other piece to keep in mind is that, you know, for many people, you know, again, getting back to like how we think about health, that particularly in the U.S. is, you know, we don't often think about like we don't take socializing as seriously as we do, like how many sit-ups we're doing at the gym or something. So, right. you know, it just even introducing that idea is that actually our social relationships are something we need to tend to. So I'll, I'll say this, as far as what we know in terms of loneliness, it's both the quantity of connections and then the quality of those connections. So, you know, it might vary from person to person how you feel connected, but you know, really it gets down to like having like at least one good friend and somebody that you can call. And, you know, for many people who are listening, they may not even have one person that they feel particularly close to. And so the bigger question is like, how can we sort of like create opportunities for some of these connections to happen? So that actually gets at one of the other hidden factors that I think is really important. And it's nice because it kind of cuts through all the different areas and that's education. So, you know, we know that education is actually critical for health. In fact, it's probably like the mother of or the granddaddy of all the, um, you know, all the hidden factors. Um, for instance, we know that, you know, for every one life saved by biomedicine, it appears that education saves eight. So, um, but the nice thing is you, it's not just formal education, it's lifelong learning. So for people listening, you know, an easy thing to do is just look for something that you're interested in. And you can even just go do like a you know, you could sign up for like a semester class or a continuing education thing, but you can also just do like a afternoon cooking class or, you know, afternoon, you know, whatever it is that you're interested in. Even the local library offers free classes. And the idea is just to show up to something that you like. One, it engages your brain, but two, it's also, you know, building your social connections. And the other piece of it is invite a friend along, you know, even someone you may not know well just to reach out is you just want to like continually be planting these seeds of support potentially in your community. Hmm. So do we know what it is exactly about the education? You mentioned a few things. I mean, there's the, it helps your brain and there's also the social connection, but is it, is it the combination, the, that you can, the mix of all of those things that somehow magically creates better health for people? Or or can you tell if there's one specific thing? Say that one more time. So no, can you tell what there. can you tell whether there's one specific aspect of it that's more helpful than others? Well, I think it's it's multifactorial, and part of it is you know, education in itself is protective in terms of sort of like you know the boost that it gives formal education potentially you know for things like you know job and income down the road, and there's also sort of the direct aspects of education such as like you know learning how to navigate your health and your community in a more positive engaging way or adaptive way and then the other piece of it is there and this is where it kind of gets like pretty mind-boggling is this idea that actually it looks as though education actually helps prolong telomeres or those little bits at the end of the DNA that help protect our lifespan and seem correlated with all causes of disease. So, you know, there's something happening on a micro level. And then there's also, and also we know that education is beneficial for keeping brains healthy. But there's there's one other piece of this that I want to mention, and that's that education often ties into purpose. And we know now that people with a sense of purpose live longer and, you know, and they live better even with illness. And, you know, just an example of that for people with, um, 
there's really interesting studies like, um, you know, for people who um, on autopsy at death have fairly significant plaques and tangles or signs of Alzheimer's disease that actually, if they reported in life having a higher sense of life purpose and usefulness, that they actually functioned better far longer than people who didn't, even though they had the signs of disease. So it's those kinds of things. Like, it's almost like we can somewhat override our biology with some of this. But, you know, the big piece of this is we have to be talking about our, our mental health and our mental well-being and our engagement with each other and society. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering how how that works to I mean it's it's fascinating. It's another one of those things that I mean I remember doing an article years ago about back pain and was interviewing a back surgeon who was saying you know, the studies of x-rays and MRIs show that about half the people who have debilitating back pain have no noticeable impairment on their on their imaging and then half of the people who have horrible imaging that you would think they shouldn't be able to walk have no pain. So you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of fascinating what we can overcome by whatever we're doing. Yeah, actually, back pain is a great example. So, you know, I talk about what got me interested in this and what led to the rabbit studies and writing the rabbit effect were these medical mysteries. And basically, exactly what you described with the back pain is, you know, patients who, so I, um, you know, I was really curious about patients who did really well despite serious diagnoses. And then the flip side of that, patients who, you know, who on paper, everything looks okay. Like there are the patients with the, you know, the back imaging where everything looks perfectly fine, but yet they are having, you know, a lot of symptoms that are interfering with their functioning in their day-to-day life. So, um, you know, kind of trying to tease apart some of that. And I thought it had something to do with sort of like the overlap with the, with mental health. So I ended up doing, you know, I first trained in internal medicine, then psychiatry. And then I ended up really sort of still feeling like something was missing. And that's where, you know, this whole field of public health and the social dimensions of health really came into play. And that's when you start to realize, like, you know, that back pain is happening in a context of a lot of other stuff going on. And sometimes it takes not just examining, you know, the final column, but also like what's happening in that person's life that they might be experiencing more intense pain than other people. And there's a lot of pain in this country. I mean, that's another thing we need to acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly Harding is the author of The Rabbit Effect, Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. It's a really fascinating read and a very positive one as well. Kelly, thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for all your good work and for encouraging, you know, us to grow as parents because, I mean, really it's one of the most meaningful ways that we can improve health of ourselves and other people. I think so too. All right. Thanks again. And a special shout-out to the folks at Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They proudly serve the Armed Forces, Department of Defense veterans, and their families. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.